Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, we're talking about the first two episodes of The Following. How did you like it? I have mixed feelings about this. Really? How so? Um, it was interesting. It was exciting. And I think that our heroes are a little dumb. <laughs> Okay, so, okay, I don't think that they're, like, completely dumb, but I think in the first episode, I was like, okay, I can totally get on board that they're not geniuses, they're trying to catch up, this guy's been planning, the serial killer's been planning all this stuff, he's been building his following, which we'll get to in a minute, he's been planning his escape and all these games, Mm -hmm. okay? So I could totally get there. And then there's some things that happen in the second episode that I was like, have they learned nothing? Okay, like, okay. Oh, okay. We, I we'll, know, we'll, I get know we'll get there in the recap. I'm so desperately trying to think through and see if I can go, oh, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but I'm not there yet. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, I we'll, don't know. We'll, we'll get there. But Kevin Bacon is great. But Kevin Bacon, he really is great. Yeah. Yeah, He's he plays Ryan Hardy, and he actually won a Saturn Award for his role for the first season. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... It was really good. I mean, of course, he's been in tons of stuff. That's why there's Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. He's, he's been in like everything. And I, he actually didn't have as many IMDb credits as I expected him to have, but he's been in a lot. But it's not so much that he's been in a lot. He's been in a lot with different types of people. Like he's continually working with new people. You know how you have some actors who continually work with the same director or the same group of other actors. Right. You know, like Adam Sandler, <laughs> yeah, Adam you Sandler know. or uh, Woody Allen, you know, he's got his favorites. He works with certain types of people. Kevin Bacon just seems to work with everybody. Well, he can do so many different things. Yeah. You know, he's well, very he does, versatile. Yeah. He does movies. He does television. He does all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I like how he can be equally fun and giddy as he can be very, very heavy. Yes. You know, that's something I really like about this show. The first two episodes, especially is you really get a taste for, um, I don't know, Hollywood tricks because he looks so grizzled. Yes. And then they flash back and you know, that's filmed at the same time. And all of a sudden he is so substantially like younger and tight looking. And then he's so like grizzled and jowled, you Uh know, and you're like, ah, reminder to self. Hollywood is Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood is Hollywood. Hollywood is Hollywood. Yep. Exactly. Because, you know, they film all those scenes where he has to look all grizzled when he's not shaved and, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and, they, and then they, they do shave him and like, things. oh, yeah, exactly. They contour him to look a I little older, you, I think. I didn't ask you what you thought. Did you like it? You seem like you really like it because you seem very surprised that I didn't. I, well, I'm surprised that you didn't. I actually, <laughs> I really like this story. Yeah, oh, okay. I really do. Okay. Now, in full disclosure, you know, I've already watched this entire series. Oh, oh, really? I didn't know that. Like, I've watched this entire series like a long time ago. Oh, okay. So I'm pretty, I, I know the series, but it's been oh, a while. Okay. So watching the first couple episodes, and really I just watched the first three episodes, um, uh-huh. getting back into it, it, 
it was just as good as I remember it. Oh, good. Um, in fact, I remember I watched this one and then I tried to watch The Killing because I thought it oh. would have the same kind of feeling. And then it was so dreadfully boring <laughs> that I was like so disappointed. See, but, and um, I really liked The Killing. Oh. I, you know, but <laughs> it did. It took... You had to be in the right headspace for it. I guess so. I got bored with it because I was actually really invested uh-huh. for a while. It was... Well, and then they didn't solve the murder at the end of the first season. And it, like a lot of people were really mad. Right. And actually, it was in the middle of the second season that mm-hmm. I started to find myself drifting off and going, uh, I don't really care who killed her. Yeah, I don't really <laughs> care anymore. What was her name? Rosie? Yeah, I don't even remember. I don't remember. Yeah. It just got so like, oh. But I, the following, I just... Lots of twists and turns, lots yeah. of unfolding, mm. right? Lots of, oh, you're, that's why this. And I like it. It's fun. You're good at secret keeping because you did not tell me that you had watched this before. <laughs> you turkey keeping secrets from me. <laughs> All right. Then we have um, Jean Ann Goosen, who played Jennifer Mason. She's done lots of TV roles. And I mentioned her because she was on several episodes of Criminal Minds' Fiona Duncan. I thought oh, you would yeah. recognize her mm-hmm. from that. Natalie Zia, Z Z E A, plays Claire Matthews. But I recognized her. She's done lots of TV roles. I recognized her um, from her role as Carrie on Californication. Because, oh. <laughs> man, that show is adults only and can be very troubling. But David Duchovny is just so gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Were you an X-Files fan? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's one of those shows that I'm like, there is nothing on. Let's put on the X-Files. That's funny. <laughs> we started to watch over the whole series again, you know, a long time ago. And, uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And then we watched the new one that came out. You yeah. Know, oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, we watched that too. And mm-hmm. that one, t- it didn't have as much charm. I don't know what it was about it. Maybe just because the tension wasn't as much there. Maybe so. Because they had been together. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Spoiler alert in case Spoiler. you haven't seen <laughs> in case you didn't see the X Files. <laughs> it's in a way, it's the sci fi version of a very long Ross and Rachel story. It really, really is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Then we have uh, James Purefoy, who played Joe Carroll. He's done lots and lots of television. Also, he was on a small part in the Netflix original series, Sex Education, which was actually really good. Was it good? I never yeah, watched it. Was it good. It was really, it was funny and smart, and it didn't make the teenagers seem stupid. So often you'll see shows and they just portray the teenagers as kind of dumb. Right. Which, you know, to be fair, teenagers can be kind of dumb, but it really respects that they're not always dumb. Right. And that there's a reason they don't know everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't it funny how we like to get mad at teenagers for not knowing everything? And then we call them freaking know-it-alls <laughs> when they learn something, you know? And then and then when they do know something, we're like mad about it. Anyways, it's just very oh, strange. I try never to tell my kids they're a know-it-all. Yeah. Because, you know, that they've both learned to be pretty good about listening that's most important yeah and then, so when they know something they really they know something they yeah like they're in it mm-hmm. my son's super into space right now and he doesn't really want to like do it for a living no no he's not at all interested in the space program or anything as far as a potential career mm-hmm. 
because I think because he knows it takes a lot of really complicated, which he likes. He says he doesn't like them, but he does like them. I can tell (laughs) because he tells me chemistry is like tiny space. Oh my gosh. Alex says that a lot too. Oh, good. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's good. But uh, he's just, he's not really interested in pursuing that kind of stuff, but he's got a lot of passion for yeah. it. So it's kind of interesting to That's see. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, he, Purefoy, I have to mention, yeah. I have to mention this because in A Knight's Tale. <gasps> yes. That's what was going to be yes! my next thing. <laughs> it's so good. With Heath Ledger. Oh man. I love that movie. That movie it was so, so good. It was so campy, but still clever and so endearing. And there's so much to like about that movie. There's so much to like. <laughs> my boys loved it. I showed yeah. it to them. They oh, really good. enjoyed it too. Then we have uh, Maggie Grace plays Sarah Fuller and she's another Californication alum because I was like, where have I seen her? And she was also in the last two Twilight movies, which oh, I've, yeah, I've that's also right. seen. <laughs> and then the final one that I'm going to mention is Nico Tortorella mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. Jacob, the gay neighbor, mm-hmm. who's not really gay, but we'll get to that in a minute. He's the hot boyfriend of Sutton Foster in the Hulu show Younger. Oh, which is excellent. And I love Sutton Foster. Yeah. It's so, it's just clever and funny. And she like has to pretend to be like 15 years younger than she is to be able to get a job in publishing in New York. And it was great. Oh, I might be checked that out. It was really, it was fun. Actually, there's a lot of pretty faces in this because um, Adam Canto Uh and he played in Designated Survivor. Um, Okay. Pretty awesome. Who was he? Uh, Paul, actually Jacob and Paul in the... God, they were gorgeous. It was one of those that I'm like, it's unfair that they are gay. Keep watching. (laughs) I know. Keep watching. Keep watching. (laughs) Um, But I have to mention Sam Underwood. We aren't there yet. He's not in these episodes. Okay. But after today, go continue watching this series. Okay. Because Sam Underwood pulls off an acting feat in this series that is unparalleled really seriously oh. unparalleled and in fact if you like okay you're so giving me a reason to watch this if you like that new one that came out living with yourself paul rudd uh-huh okay if you like that kind of acting i like uh-huh. the whole idea of somebody playing their own that was actually right? really okay, good yeah amazing but it was pioneered here sam underwood really? changes the face of what it means to to parallel yourself. Um, he really is. He's an absolute linchpin. I mean, the acting is amazing. He's a very versatile actor also. He can be very... He was in Dexter. Yeah. He played in Dexter. Yeah. He's a very... Um, so keep watching after this episode that okay. we talk about. Okay. Just keep going. Okay. Keep going. We're going to recap real quick. Two episodes. Can I say we got the two episodes with the most boring titles? <laughs> Episode one's called The Pilot, and episode two is called Chapter Two. And I get that it's just a whole like literary thing that they call it Chapter Two, but after that, all the episode names get much better. They're much more interesting, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what that's about. Oh, I wonder what that's about. You looking at? Are you I'm looking, looking at up the names? Wait, wait, wait. Because I don't ever pay attention to the names. <laughs> Actually, I thought of you because you're so good at naming our show. Like all of our episodes have such amazingly witty names. And I needed to name something recently. And I was like, I need to text Christy because I can't figure out how to name this. I want it to be, you know, so it's our little newsletter and blog post thing that I have to send out every once in a while. And I can't name them to save my life. I'm just too pragmatic, I guess. Anytime you need help, just send, let me know. But let me tell you. 
is literally the day before these episodes <laughs> are released because I'm like, what am I going to name this? I'm sitting at a screen and I'm like, what am I going to name this? But like, you're so good gonna, at it. See, like, look I, at this. I would have named it Pilot and Chapter Two, and then uh-huh. they would have hired you, and then they would have started naming it <laughs> The Poet's Fire and Mad Love and The Siege and all of this. Like, Here this would go. be you. And I would have done Pilot. Aww. Well, thanks. In chapter, two. <laughs> chapter two. In fact, me, like, friends, I, I could have maybe pulled off, like, the one with the, like, I thought that was super witty, but how easy is that to actually then, like, do yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it was a good, it was one good idea that they were able to make work for 10 seasons. Oh, my God. Efficient and it creativity. So I love it. Yes. <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. All right. The pilot. Let's go through it. Recap. There's a very exciting prison escape from Virginia's central penitentiary. Many guards die. And Joe Carroll, a serial killer, played by James Purefoy, drives right out the front door, the front gate, disguised as a guard. In Brooklyn, Ryan Hardy, who is Kevin Bacon, played by Kevin Bacon. He, not, he isn't Kevin Bacon. He isn't Kevin He's Bacon. Only He's played, played by Kevin Bacon. <laughs> He's ignoring phone calls until he flips on the television and sees that the serial killer has escaped. And we quickly learn a bunch of stuff. He's a former FBI agent. He was the one who caught the killer who escaped from prison. He has some sort of injury in his chest that has healed, obviously, but it seems like it's important for us to know. He probably has a drinking problem because he put vodka in a water bottle and he wrote a book about this serial killer, he was the topic of the book. So we learn all of those things like in 30 seconds. I mean, hardly 30 seconds. I mean, it's so fast. It's, it's like, so here, fast, here's what you need to know yeah, to enjoy this. There, which I was like, that is a nice little bit of filmmaking there to tell us that much information that quickly. Yep. I'm like, nice. The police arrive at a home. They're there to protect Sarah Fuller, who was the final victim of Carol, the serial killer, and she survived her attack and testified against him. Ryan goes to the prison and he arrives dramatically in a helicopter. <laughs> I was like, really? Well, a, yeah, a, of course. A helicopter? Of course. <laughs> of course. Why not? Uh-huh. They go and look in his cell that where he'd been on death row and they find a copy of Ryan Hardy's book, The Poetry of a Killer, and there's a note to Ryan in it that somehow the forensic team missed this just entirely. Then there's this makeshift command center set up. There are a bunch of people like waiting, and there's a bunch of agents there like looking around at stuff, trying to figure stuff out and making plans. And Ryan gives us some insight into the serial killer since he's very well aware of him. He wrote a flop of a novel called The Gothic Sea. He was super influenced by Edgar Allan Poe and the murders that he committed prior to being in the prison that he just escaped from were a tribute to the author. And Ryan was stabbed by Carol in their final encounter. Yes. And now he has a pacemaker. Yes. There's a bunch of women in the waiting room, and we learned that there are groupies that had visited Carol in prison, and he'd had 112 visitors in two years, and that's a lot. Hey, 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 didn't we talk about this sort of thing just this past episode? Yeah, we sure did. So one of the visitors stands in the lobby, and then she undresses to reveal that she has had 
lines from the raven written all over her body. And then she says, Lord, help my poor soul and stabs herself in the eye with an ice pick. It's very, very dramatic. Very, very dramatic. She dies and it's revealed that she had multiple identities, at least two of which went to visit Carol in prison. Yeah, she's a very interesting person. And Mm -hmm. you know what? The first time you see her, I was looking at her going, that's an interesting dress. Well, (laughs) why is she in that dress? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't don't think I'd ever wake up and like put that dress on. And what's really funny is I thought the same thing this time when I watched it again, kind of forgetting what was about to happen. (laughs) And I realized apparently I'm very, very... um, judgmental about clothing that I didn't really quite recognize like how much I hated it. Jackie learning stuff about herself watching the following. I was like, really? I don't know why I have such a hatred for that. Like, particular style it was an ugly dress it was kind of an ugly dress but it's just a particular style and i don't know i'm drawn into it because immediately i'm going to the same monologue in my head going (laughs) what young woman like grab out this dress like why in the world i couldn't see my and then she rips it off i'm like oh yeah that's efficient Uh okay (laughs) carol's ex-wife we see her the fbi and the police have gone to talk to her and she will only talk to ryan and we learned that Carol and his ex-wife were professors at a university and that his last victim, Sarah, who survived and testified against him, was an uh, enamored student. Carol was acting as his own attorney in prison for his appeals. He was accessing all of the law books on a computer in the library. They didn't have all the books there. They have them on the computer. And he'd use some sort of sophisticated virus to get on the internet and make a whole bunch of websites and build a following. And they realize he must have had help from a guard. So they look at the roster of who worked there and realize that Jordan Jordy Rains had called in sick the night of the escape. So he becomes their primary suspect. They go to Jordy's home and they find out he's been killing dogs to learn how to become a serial killer. Dun, dun, dun. Really creepy. Yeah. So, it's really gross. Sarah Fuller, the first victim, or the last victim. She wasn't the first victim. Not the first. No. The last. Yeah. Uh, she has her friends, the gay neighbors, over to keep her company, but she's tired. And so she decides she's going to go to bed. They offer to watch a movie and play games with her. And she's like, I think I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. As she's preparing to go to bed, we see many, many scars on her. And then a flashback of Carol breaking into the sorority house. And Carol kills Sarah's sorority sister right there in front of her. Ryan speaks with Carol's ex-wife. She said she only wanted to talk to him. And so he goes to speak with her alone. And we realize that she knows him really well. That Because she asks him about his heart and his drinking. Yeah. Yeah. We know. She knows. Really she, quite quickly. Yeah. About their Yes. That they. Relationship. That they, that, yeah. That they were very f- familiar with one another. Yes. Yes. So she reveals to Ryan that she got a letter from Carol the week prior. And he had declared that he wanted to finish things, which Ryan interprets as he needs to kill Sarah Fuller because she's the last thing that he left undone. And it's just very convenient that he talks to her and rushes over and 
makes the connections right as events are about to transpire. So he goes to check on Sarah, and of course, she's not there. She's been kidnapped because there was a false back in the rear of one of her closets that her between her condo and her gay neighbor's condo, and they she's been kidnapped by the gay neighbors, and we know this because they're a they're all gone and. We also know that they're followers of Carol's because they've killed one of the police officers and written Nevermore in his blood in their garage. It's very creepy. It's all extremely creepy. Yes. Then we see a flashback of Sarah's original attack and how Ryan saved her and got his injury. They're searching the gay neighbor's condo for clues and ryan sees the couple at a bed and breakfast called the lighthouse and ryan decides to go look there for missing sarah and while he's there he's attacked by carol and finds out sarah's already been murdered which is a throwback to one of the poe yeah poems so he kind of makes the dots because he's so used to putting it through that lens of seeing all of the the poems and seeing what carol would like he knows this guy and so he realizes well the lighthouse was the unfinished unfinished work work. poe at the end so So he he puts it together pretty quickly like he knows it's a game pretty quickly he he knows it's a game he well i mean he played the game with carol for for years. years yeah yeah while he was trying to capture him and he's used to putting it all through a Poe lens. So right. it didn't not make sense to me that he put that together. You know, right. sometimes they're like too smart. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, how did you get there? This makes sense. This makes sense. Yeah. Carol's captured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't really ever thinking he was going to stay out of prison. I don't think. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. I think he kind of always intended or expected to be recaptured after he killed Sarah Fuller and he would that was kind of okay with him because yeah because what he says later in the episode sort of and in the next episode sort of gives you this impression that this is a long con oh yeah he's got a lot of games he wants to play after he's back in prison Carol wants to talk to Ryan he wants Ryan to write another book. And I was like, hey, look, it's the eighth psychopath. I know, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm like, we just covered seven psychopaths where the psychopath did a lot of terrible things to help a guy write a movie. And, and now yeah, we're writing now, a book. Now we're writing a book. Uh, I'm just kind of like, why not just write the book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just write the book yourself and don't like oh. involve a oh, bunch wait. of people's oh, murder wait. in it. I forgot he's a failed writer. Oh, oh moving on. Oh. Ouch. <laughs> this is the this is where we get the insinuation that Ryan and Carol's ex-wife Claire had a romantic relationship. So we knew that they knew each other. If you didn't get it the first time they talked. They had a romantic relationship. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they did. And Ryan gets mad and breaks Carol's fingers, which he deserved it. Yeah, pretty fun. Rightly so. Yep. Not worried about it. Nope. We had learned earlier that Joe Carroll and his ex-wife Claire had had a son named Joey. Now Joey's missing here at the end of the episode. This is our cliffhanger. Then we learned that the babysitter, the nanny, Denise is an acolyte of Carol's and she goes to meet the, oh, not so gay couple in a parking lot and they run away with the boy. Yes. That is the end of the episode. 
end. Chapter two. Chapter two. Mm-hmm. So Jordy, the prison guard, is wearing his uniform and posing as campus security at Winslow University and thus gains access to Delta Rho Gamma Sorority House. He's very familiar with the house through a kit onto the windowsill earlier mm-hmm. and uh, proceeds to do some terrible things in that yeah, house. Yeah, he's a... Whew, he's not a he's good the name. kind of person... You know, I mean, by person, I mean character. This right. is the type of character that is super creepy because he actually doesn't look super creepy. No. He kind of looks like a, you know, not so bright puppy, uh-huh. you know, which are the ones that are more loving and fun. And so you kind of like almost trust them instinctually. You just don't see it coming. He's got a very like welcoming kind kind of face. Yeah. And, but yeah. he's also very, very demented. Oh, Oh, yes. Then we see the kidnappers of Joey, Denise, the babysitter, Jacob and Paul, the quote-unquote gay couple. They take Joey to this idyllic home. You think he's getting hurt, but he's not. They're just playing. Denise tells Joey that his mom does not want them to call. We learn for sure that Paul and Jacob are not gay because Jacob is involved with Denise. And Paul does not like Joey or children at all. Then we see Deborah Parker. She's the FBI agent in charge of the whole investigation. And she's trying to in- decide how to involve Ryan in their investigation. He wants a gun. He wants to be deputized. She is concerned about his heart and his drinking. Fair. Fair. <laughs> the sorority house is discovered as a crime scene. Jordy didn't try to conceal his identity at all. And he's following... Carol's tactics of murder. So Claire visits Carol to try and figure out Joey's whereabouts. And we then we get actual confirmation that Claire and Ryan did have a romantic relationship briefly after she divorced this serial killer yes. while he was in prison. Then we learn that Denise's name is really Emma. And like Sarah, she was a student And the FBI figures this out after looking at footage of visitors going to see inmates. And they go to her former address. It's abandoned. Nobody's been there in a long time. They break in. They find lots of Poe-inspired graffiti in the house. And while they're there, Ryan's attacked by a man or a person in a Poe mask, which is super creepy. It was scary. Like, they filmed that really well. They really did, because it made me jump and, like, gasp, Mm -hmm. which I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. I kind of enjoy the jump scares. Right, right, right. (laughs) So the FBI finally admits that this is a cult, something that they had not wanted to admit prior, and that Poe's writing is the sacred text for this particular cult. We learn that Emma slash Denise and Jacob and Paul have all visited Carol in prison. And then we learn how Emma and Jacob got together. And it was because Carol set them up. Yeah, Carol brought them together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see a memory, a flashback of the mother, Emma's mother, flirting with Jacob while they're there for a meal. Thanksgiving, I don't know, or just a general meal. I think just over for dinner. Just a general Mm -hmm. meal. And the mom's real belittling towards her daughter, talking about how she's like not pretty enough and not smart enough. Yeah. And 
real belittling, but also flirty with Jacob, which as she had been when she met Carol in front. Carol had obviously taken an interest in this young girl, Emma, Mm -hmm. and the mom was super flirty. And Emma then literally stabs her mother in the back. Yes. Jacob is surprised, but not shocked or scared. And also, yeah, quite delighted, actually. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes him really like her a lot more. So then back in the present time, they're in Emma's old house and they go up to the attic and they find the mother sealed in a wall, photos of all of Carol's victims, and Claire's photo is among them. They have plans for Claire's home. So, of course, you know, they go rushing over there. Claire's about to go to bed, and an officer checks her bedroom. Poorly. Poorly. This this is where I'm like, did we learn nothing from Sarah's death? Yeah, but I'm I'm glad that they addressed this issue after the fact, though. Yeah. Yes. They addressed it, because they got onto them. Yeah. The FBI had used the local Leos, right, to do that kind of portion. And so after all of this happens... Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll get there. Yeah. Jordy's there. He attacks the police officer. And he very, very agilely <laughs> jumps down from the ceiling. And I'm like, first of all, there ain't no way that man ain't making a boom. Yeah. Well, Jordy's a big guy. He's a big dude. He's and a big guy. And it was like he lowered himself like, like he'd been a yoga master. Like Cirque du Soleil coming out of the freaking ceiling. And yeah, I was like, all no. like super slow and it's trying no. to build tension. First of all, he like, fit. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Second of all, he comes down and I was like, he ain't that strong. No, uh-uh. So that was little whatever. Yeah. Agreed. Suspend your disbelief. Yes. He takes Claire hostage and of course Ryan shows up in the nick of time mm-hmm. and Jordy tells him that he has a plan. Either Jordy kills Claire while Ryan watches, or Ryan has to kill Jordy, which are, you know, the two ways that Carol is going to torture Ryan from afar. Right. Ryan shoots Jordy. He ends up being not wounded enough to die. He's going to recover fully. Ryan goes to see Carol in prison. Carol is very pleased that Claire is alive. I get the impression that he could have could have gone either way, but he was re- prefers her alive because the games are much more fun if she's right, alive. Right. And Jordy's survival wasn't part of the plan, but yeah, it'll be fine. He was expendable anyway. Yes, but he does give away some clues in his frustration because mm-hmm. he yes. did expect Jordy to die. Yes, he, he did. sort of expected Ryan to show up. He sort of expected that Ryan would win the standoff. Yeah. But when he realizes that Jordy is alive, you can see that he's actively kind of like, ooh. Yeah. I didn't expect that. He expected him to die either way. Right. He really did. Yeah. He's either going to die and Claire is going to be saved or he's going to kill Claire and end up dying. Right. And so he was surprised. And so he let a couple of things slip. Yeah. That's interesting. Claire asks Ryan to stay, even though there's additional security because she trusts no one. And rightfully so. And rightfully so. So, okay, wait. So, so how does the episode end? (laughs) It ends with Deborah Parker, FBI leader, taking Carol a copy of Poe's work in prison. And I'm not quite sure what that means. I don't know if 
she's a part of it or if she's just trying to ingratiate herself to get more information from Giving him. Giving a dog a bone, seeing what he chews yeah. on. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. And then we end with a person in a poe mask lighting a man on fire at a hot dog vendor. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Very dramatic. Very, very Very dramatic. dramatic. Yeah. This was an article uh, written at the end of the first season by Graham McMillan. Why the following just might be the most insulting show on TV. What? (laughs) And they kind of had the same feeling that I did. I'm like, these people are a little bit dumb. And they they said it started off pretty good, but that every episode throughout the end of the first season, it wasn't so much that the psychopath was so smart. It was that the FBI was kind of dumb that he was able, they were like, none of the plans that he made really could only have come from the mind of this genius, that it was really like bumbling mistakes that the FBI made that these things continued to work. I mean, I can, I guess I can kind of see that, but uh-huh. I also think that maybe we're expecting more out of the FBI in general mm-hmm. and then more out of the FBI characters in here than you're really supposed to. Well, and you forgive a lot to be able to have this drama, but that you really need it to be a fair fight. You really need the opponents to be evenly matched. And he felt like they weren't as evenly matched as they should be. And this was interesting. Otherwise, the show becomes something different, a potentially darker one, somewhere where evil is cunning and ever-present while the forces of good bumble haplessly behind. Oh, welcome to the earth. I don't know. Have you been here for a while? I mean, that's kind of your truth, which is... It is true, but on the... To be honest, that's not what I want from my entertainment. I guess that's true. Okay. To me, what I kind of see is not just a difference in intelligence, because he's right. Uh The plans aren't about being so super smart. They're about not being lazy. It's really a testament to the work he put in. He puts all this work into all of these things. He does the work. He puts in the effort. He brings people together. He makes the plans. And that's what's fun about it. Mm. And then even Hardy, in the first couple episodes, we see his frustration with the FBI, how they don't want to think about things. They don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to admit that it's a cult. They don't want to admit that it's a cult. They don't want to... They're lazy. And that's his kind of like his, like, I'm done with this. I'm... You know, I'm so I see what is really uh, not a discussion of talent and skill or intelligence. It's a matter of effort and putting the work in to do the job well. And so the bumbling I see is because, okay, so back to that scene, right? So Jordy has, you know, Claire Matthews by gunpoint and and Hardy rushes in. So Ryan's here to stay of the day and he's smart. You know, now the FBI is outside the door and he says, do you want me to close the door? You want me to close the door? And he kind of does it slowly enough that the FBI guy is able to stick a gun in his back pocket, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. before the door is closed. And so the shooting happens. 
and they're debriefing. And so the local EOs are all standing around and the FBI is ripping the captain a new one. Yeah. The person on the force who is there. And she makes this really awful excuse. Well, he was hiding underneath and behind a an AC unit we didn't know was there. How are we supposed to know to look there if we didn't know the AC unit was there? And the FBI turns around and says, that was your job to know it was there. And then the FBI says, if you're not FBI, out of this house. Yeah. So they basically fire them from doing the job. And it was right. kind of like another testament to this whole idea that you don't do your jobs. You don't yeah. think ahead mm. about these things. Oh, okay. the killer's going after his last victim. How did you not think of this? Yeah. Why aren't you ahead of this? Right. And so it's kind of like a indictment. Well, and they thought they were, mm-hmm. to be fair. But yes, that's, hmm. you know, okay. I don't know. Well, I have all kinds of is it true and some psychology stuff and some real life stuff but we're gonna get to all that right after a quick break dad i'm hungry hi hungry i'm dad the podcast where nerdy dads talk nerdy fads we talk life entertainment and give advice to those who never asked for it like anytime i do anything my brother calls me a thought what do i do or best college degree for a supervillain. So go smash that like button. Find us wherever podcasts live. Uh, where's that, Jared? A magical place called the internet. Like Spider-Man and Elsa's shipping videos. <laughs> Dad, I'm hungry. Wait! We're back. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. Is it true? I mean, of course, all of this is fiction. It's so super fiction. we should look at... yeah. So we had to look at like, what did they get right? What did they get wrong? Sort of things. So there's a lot of cliches about the FBI. What is it really like when the FBI interacts with local police? They really treated local police like bodyguards. They really kind of did. In, in this, in these first couple episodes. So, but what is it, how does it really behave? We tend to think that there are teams of FBI profilers hunting serial killers all the time. (laughs) No. At any given time, there are only about 15 to 20 full-time special agent profilers in the behavioral analysis unit. And they're developing profiles for all kinds of different crimes. This is an article by uh, Jerry Williams and... She's actually retired from the FBI and has her own podcast uh, called FBI Retired Case File Review. So supposedly that's quite good, particularly if you're a fiction writer who's looking to incorporate the FBI. Her podcast is a great resource. Interesting. Yeah. They portrayed the FBI as not playing well with others. They made the local authorities seem really dumb when they wrote this. And actually, the FBI really, really respects local authorities and works with them and is very respectful of them because they legitimately need their help and understand that they have a lot of expertise to share. Actually, it's, I think of uh, Criminal Minds does a good job of showcasing that sort of relationship, oh, right? Good. Because yeah. they're always talking about we can't go into a case unless we're invited in. And I don't even know that that's true, but the show does a better job of showing the, you know, the local heroism. Well, uh, yeah. And the local guys aren't a bunch of idiots. No. I mean, just because they don't work for the FBI doesn't mean they're dumb. 
So. Right. I always wanted to be an FBI. Well, I should say I wanted to be a GBI profiler. Oh yes, um, Georgia, Georgia. Mm-hmm. An investigation, and so um, I always thought that would be really cool. So uh-huh. as a kid, I did like a project on the GBI, Ooh. and I wrote them a letter. You've been so good. At that. And then they sent me all this stuff back. Like You've I got all so- kinds of swag. Yeah, that's it was so fun. cool. You'd have been so good at that. But I'm it glad it. Fun. I'm glad it didn't happen because then you'd still be in Georgia, and it's I wouldn't know true. you. That's true. So, you know, I can be sad for little Jackie that she didn't achieve that particular dream, but also be happy that I got to meet yeah. adult Jackie. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm glad I'm here too. Yeah. It was well, good. good. Uh, misconceptions that there's some kind of central database. <laughs> and there is no database where you can type a person's name in and learn everything about them. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It d- no, it doesn't happen. There is not a central database that the government has that has every parking ticket, every place you've ever been. It's just there's a reason why way. you have to piece it all together from phone records and local records and right. I this mean, is why analysts exist because yeah. they they could go to all of these different places and like put it together. Yeah. Exactly. That FBI agents work for federal prosecutors. They work with them, not for them. The FBI is its own entity. All FBI agents seem to work on task forces, and that's not true. This is actually really interesting that they'll team up with a squad mate like the team of people that they actually work with for safety or to get uh, additional thoughts on things. But they have a very entrepreneurial ownership of their cases that it's up to them without a whole lot of oversight in most cases to decide what resources they need, when, what their budget's going to look like, and put those teams together to work with. They're not task forces put together by some one head honcho. It's a very much an agent sees an issue and goes after it and sets it up themselves. That's really cool. Yeah, I think it's really neat. It's a lot of agency to put on a, a single person. Really respects their intelligence and their capacity to see an issue and try and solve it. Right. The respect of the expertise. Yeah. We, and the we talent. They spend a lot of time hiring people. And then once they're hired, they really let them do their job. Right. Which is great. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine let's, that. Let's, let's let Imagine people do that. their jobs. <laughs> uh, the FBI senior executives hardly ever out in the field. That you see them all the time in these shows where, you know, they have the head honchos, the director of the FBI is here. No, 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 no. They don't want to be out there. Not the director of the FBI, not an assistant director in charge, not a special agent in charge, not an assistant special agent in charge. If something goes wrong, they want plausible deniability because that's how you get promoted. Agents use intimidation and threats during interrogations. They don't, first of all, they don't interrogate people. They interview people. (laughs) (laughs) And second of all, they don't want adversarial confrontations because not only are they trying to get information from these people, they're trying to build networks of people who can help them find more people involved with whatever awful thing is happening. 
Yeah, it's a little different than crime to crime. Yeah. Right? Crime to crime is one thing, but when you have a rabbit hole you're trying to get through, you need to keep making progress. Yeah, you don't want to collapse the rabbit hole. You need to find help to dig it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Look at us. Interview (laughs) is a bit of like a, a euphemism, though. Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're interrogating. They're just doing it. They're just doing nicely. it really yeah, polite. They're really polite about it. Yeah. They're still catching flies. They're just doing it with honey. Yeah, you know? Exactly. FBI agents are perfect to never get in trouble. And she said this one's actually kind of true. <laughs> well, look at them. They're so big, like manipulators with their interviews. I'm just kidding. Well, I'm she kidding. said that they all live by the idea that you don't embarrass the Bureau and that there's going to be a lot of problems if you embarrass the Bureau. And if you don't, you just you don't get in trouble. There's, It's not worth it to jeopardize your investigations that way. What's interesting is organizationally speaking, the ability to have that mindset as an agent is super helped by the fact that you have so much autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's the respect coming from the top down to do your job without much you know, broader leeway and without all of the big heavy oversight um, that allows you to then not have to worry about and embarrassing anybody because you don't have to worry about, um, that, you know, positive disobedience, right. That we talked about episodes ago, Uh like a year ago, Yeah, you know, like we talked about that, you know, I've got to break this rule to do something good. Well, they have circumvented that by kind of getting rid of the tight net of rules. Right. And then giving them a character, right. That's the thing. If you have rules, it's, if you, have a character that guides you, it's just better mm-hmm. in the long run. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, agents have no sense of humor. That's not true at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's just as many dorks working there as anywhere else. <laughs> oh, they said, you know, they, they tend to work long hours in close proximity to coworkers and that lots and lots of practical jokes happen. They take their job very seriously, but they don't take their relationships so seriously. You know, they're humans. Well, they're I not think everybody thinks of like romance. the Matrix. Yeah. Mr. Anderson, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Even that's like really funny. <laughs> I mean, funny. have you ever like, you watch those movies and they're, it's a legitimately funny. It really is legitimately funny, but he's so like serious. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that's why it's so funny. Yeah. All FBI agents are white males. Unfortunately, <laughs> this one's actually kind of true. It's too true. Yes. They're approximately 70% of special agents are white males, but they are working actively to try and reflect the population for which the FBI is working. So they're actively recruiting women, people of color, particularly women of color Mm -hmm. is a very, very underrepresented group in the FBI and they are actively working to try and change that because they do have a different perspective. They do bring something new to the table that I wonder how that happened. I like, 
you know, you can look at other organizations or institutions or, you know, just other career paths and you could kind of see how they ended up being so lopsided as far as their diversity. But I, I have trouble understanding how that ended up so much like that. Because uh, they went to universities and picked out the white males. Those were the ones that came to the booth. <laughs> and, and, because it, and because there were a bunch of white males at the booth, those are the... That other people didn't I think go. It was like the ball started sort of rolling yeah, in that I direction. Really, I really sort of think that that's sort of like you know, ooh, the FBI and you know mm-hmm. these men who've grown up thinking you know they wanted to, this exciting career, which it is an exciting career. It can be not always exciting, just like any career. Mm-hmm. Life isn't always exciting. It would be horribly stressful if it were. Right, right. I guess I'm thinking. I'm thinking about all the different things that could have caused that. Like, uh, you know, Nepotism did it start with? And- did it start with mistrust of local law enforcement in certain communities mm. that then prevented those individuals who did go to college, people of color who did go to college, from looking at the federal level as a possibility? You know, like I'm looking at all the different ways because I know that for sure it's a it's a ball rolling in one direction. Right. But there's definitely certain things per institution that sort of are linchpins. Well, and they may have also not gone to historically black universities to recruit to for a long time. That would make sense to me as well. Mm-hmm. Because, know. I mean, you can't be in Baltimore, D.C. area and not, I mean, that's a very diverse community. So right. as far as percentages, maybe it's not great as far as the percentages in college, but the numbers are good. So there's still yeah. like a number of people to choose from. Um, but it I seems know. like there is a distrust mm-hmm. of local law enforcement or I don't know. It's interesting. It is interesting. I don't know what happened, but they are actively trying to repair that. So I think that's great. That's great. Yeah, because we should want all of our law enforcement agencies to represent demographically the people which they're protecting. It it helps uh, remove bias as much as possible. Every Mm -hmm. person has a bias. But anyway, so the character of Joe Carroll, was he based on a real serial killer? Oh, yes, he actually was. Actually, he was based on several. He's an amalgamation of four different serial killers. Now, the only one that they've officially released is Ted Bundy because they wanted him to be attractive and charming, which we all know that that's subjective. Totally subjective. As we talked about the last episode. Yes. Totally subjective. Ted Bundy is not hot. No. The only one that they mentioned at the time of this article, which was in 2014, was Ted Bundy, because the others were still living. Ooh. But you know who's died since then? Who? Charlie Manson. Oh. And I'm certain. Yes. Okay. I'm certain he's got to be one, right? With the whole following and all the... It kind of does feel that way. All the stuff. I'll post an article about that. I'm not going to talk about Charlie Manson right now, but... No. Uh, you, I'll put an article on our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. You can find us on Twitter, at Killer Fun Pod, or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. All right, what about uh, Delta Rho Gamma at Winslow University? <laughs> That alphabet soup is foreign to me. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I was never in a sorority. Nope. Winslow University is fictional. Well, good. Uh, But there is 
a Delta Rho Gamma sorority. Oh, that's stupid. No, it was formed after the show. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, then that's it all was, right then. Because how formed. scary is that? Like, you know, you don't want your college or no. your or your sorority like implicated in these kind of shows because no. there's weirdos who this might w- then, well, I don't know, make a sorority. Oh, I, what I, are they doing? I don't think that they knew anything about <laughs> the following, to be honest. Whoops. It was founded November 15th of 2016, so... Please tell me. Near please tell me they invited Kevin Bacon to one of their like oh, gosh, I hope So if they didn't say anything about that. So you, would, I would think that they would have mentioned that, but I don't know when this website was created. But it looks like they might have only had two members, <laughs> which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's funny. That's more of a couple of people getting together. But if they want to call themselves a sorority and build something, I'm totally. Fine I'm with totally that. for it. Yeah. The prison. Virginia Central Penitentiary, also fictional. Oh, I like it better when shows do it that way. Yeah, me too. I don't know. I don't want to. So that many people, 112 people, went and saw Carol in prison. And they did it with different identities. No. (laughs) Let's just say, uh, no. You can have that many people on your visitors list. You're probably not going to be able to have that many visitors, Partly because I just read an article about this, about a woman who was accompanying a woman who was going to see a family member who was incarcerated and how they use visitation as a means of punishment. And so probably if they were in at all trying to punish Carol in any way, they would have revoked his privileges. You also have to, if you want to visit somebody in prison, any prison in the United States, like not jail, not like if they've gone, they've been arrested for something and you need to like get them attorney in and bail them out and things. You don't have to go through this whole process. But if somebody is in prison, they've been convicted. There's a huge, long process. You have to have background checks done. You have to submit photo IDs, social security numbers. It can take four weeks, 30 to 90 days to get approval. And then they don't tell you. It's up to the inmate to tell you whether you've been approved or not. So... It's uh, no. It's a long process. I think it would have been difficult to near impossible for all of these people, which we saw at least four just in the first two episodes who had multiple identities visiting Carol. Mm-hmm. No, it's not going to happen. They wouldn't get approved. No, they wouldn't get approved. They wouldn't get approved. No. Our psychology break. Psychology, psychology break. break. Let's dive into the minds. Was Edgar Allan Poe mentally ill? Uh, probably. Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. That, I mean, they like, don't... It's maybe like several things. Yeah. yeah well, that's def- probably not as severe as you might think. Uh, right. Well, he had a very troubled life. Um, I'm sure I'll post some articles about his whole troubled life. But they, he definitely suffered from depression. That we can be relatively right. That was kind of about. well documented. Right? Yes, but some of his other issues suggest bipolar disorder, made worse by drug and alcohol abuse, for sure. He also is believed to have had epileptic seizures, so you know that doesn't help things. And some of the things that he he also talked about a lot of mental illness in his work. It was, you know, I mean, whether it's autobiographical or not, 
doesn't really mean anything, but he, he he identified some things that we now know what they are, which I thought was kind of interesting. So in this article is from Scientific Electronic Library Online. In the story, The Fall of the House of Usher, the family members suffer from a hereditary disease that presents as pallor. So they were anemic and they were very sensitive to light and had a weakness in their extremities along with behavioral disorders. And this is a detailed description that is for porphyria that had not been described in literature or was not a part of the medical documentation at that time. So it's kind of interesting. He probably knew somebody. He must have. Yeah, to be able to get all of it correct. And uh, in The Businessman, the title character suffered head trauma in childhood and that had uh, caused uh, antisocial behavior from a lesion, probably a lesion on the brain. And he had obsessive compulsive components to that, which I thought was kind of interesting. So that's interesting. I mean, he was a very dark individual and you, a lot of my, what a tragedy. People would maybe assume that because he writes such, morbid things that that would be what points to his mental illnesses but really no that's not it so people might think he's far more ill than he really was he was actually just very astute right um no he definitely had a morbid mind and yes but it's not insanity right yeah Yeah. exactly well i mean just like you can have somebody who's a, a counselor or a therapist of some kind who then turns around and commits suicide you know, they know the right things to say, but that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. they're well or that they're unwell. Right. So if you, you might write morbid, terrible things and be a very well-adjusted, kind, fun, loving individual who's a joy to be around, but you yeah. have this dark part to your mind where you can write these awful, awful things. Oh, I started thinking about the, well, I had asked you, like, I don't know what to cover. We've covered a lot of cults lately. We really have covered a lot of cults, but keep watching this series. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep after it. But we talked a lot about cults and serial killers because we just covered Nexium and Ted Bundy. So, you know, we've talked a lot about that. So I was like, I don't know what else to cover. And you mentioned, well, what about Ryan having a relationship with Claire? You know? I couldn't find any specific about that, but it reminded me that there was kind of an interesting phenomenon after September 11th. You know, there was about 200 widows of firefighters who went to help with that tragedy. And it was very important to the firefighters who were left to really take care of these widows. And there are a whole bunch of them that divorced their wives and married widows, a large enough percentage that the New York City Fire Department expanded its staff of licensed counselors from about a dozen to close to 300. Whoa. (laughs) Because it was a very concerning experience that they had these, now they they had one family that was shattered. And now there's two. And now there's two families that are shattered. And the idea was to 
pull the firefighters out of the role of therapist and consoler for these widows that they can support them, but a little more distantly. Well, the thing they forgot, obviously, is that that shared traumatic experience is such a draw. And so they put actually two people had been through a very similar same tragedy in close quarters. And yes, Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I was going to say, we just saw that with the branding. In Nexium, we had this trauma bonding. Uh, they actually call it uh, compassion fatigue. So when caregivers experience a kind of secondary post-traumatic stress, and that causes issues in their relationships. So thank you, Richard Jerome, for that article from 2003. Wow. I yeah. never really heard about that. Oh, really? Oh, I never I heard about all of the oh, no. marriages that came out of that. I mean, it doesn't surprise oh, me man. that much, but it does surprise me that they would divorce people to do it. Yeah. It's one thing when two people bond over tragedy. Like you could see, I could see a lot of the single firefighters end up marrying widows of, but I did like not. A, a dozen divorce their wives to marry a That's widow. interesting. It's so sad. It is sad. It's so sad. You know, when they've got their spouse at home who loves them and suddenly can't relate they don't feel like they can relate because they haven't gone through the quite this exact tragedy and here these two people missing the same person it they just kind of bond over that oh man all right real life carol mentioned at one point that there are three thousand active serial killers in the u.s and that is they believe about right and that's scary <gasps> so we, we think of like the 70s as being like the heyday for serial killers because there's a lot of them that are famous from that time. And really, the FBI says that serial killers account for about for less than 1% of murders in the United States. And they, that's down quite a bit. And they attribute that decline to longer prison sentences no parole, better forensic science, less hitchhiking, more helicopter parents actually has a limiting effect on serial killers because they catch it early when they start torturing, you know, animals and things. They nip it in the bud. And, you know, 60 million security cameras in the United States. Well, that does help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That does if help. If you know you're on camera, you're less likely to do something awful. It's true. Especially in public. It's interesting. You don't actually read about the benefits of helicopter parents. Yeah. Since helicopter parents is kind of a derogatory sort of term, but people really do forget you know, that there was stuff going on that caused parents to take an interest and caused people to change the culture to protect them. Now, is everything that happened since then good and beneficial? No. no. People can overreact. They can definitely overcorrect. But in a lot of ways, we started paying attention in ways that was very helpful, you yes. know? You know, like I think about sometimes I see a meme on Facebook and people were like, I survived riding in a car with no seatbelt and da 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 da. And they kind of make these jokes. And I'm like, okay, but you know what? didn't? A freaking lot of them. <laughs> a freaking more a lot of people yeah. than you want to recognize, actually. 
thrown out the window of cars and things like that. And oh my God, those cars didn't go near as fast as the ones today. So let's just, you know what? Back off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my kids still can't believe that I was ever allowed to ride in the bed of a truck. Oh, yeah. They're like, that's so dangerous. And I'm like, yep, it, it kind sure of was. really is. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why it's illegal now for anybody under the age of 18 to do that. Because if you're over 18, you should know better. And they're like, yeah, survival of the fittest. Let's mm, weed out the yeah, stupid right? people. Here's something interesting. The number of serial killers has or serial killings has supposedly fallen, but so is the clearance rate by a lot. So it used to be 91% clearance rate in 1965, which means we have a suspect and we've arrested them and indicted them. That's what clearance is. It doesn't mean they were convicted. It just means that for all intents and purposes, they've caught the person. They, they Yes, they've solved the case. Um, now it's only down to like less than 62%. And we had talked about that back when we talked about Dexter. We did talk about that clearance rates. Yeah. And so 40, about 40% of the time people get away with murder. Well, you know what? Internet. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of it. The FBI put out a press release in 2016 that said, if there's such a thing as an ideal profession for a serial killer, it may well be as a long haul trucker. Oh, yeah. Which is why they created a certain database. Yes. Yes. They've that I don't have the information on. But yes, they've they're like tracking these things a little more closely than they used to. And part of that is because of Samuel Little. And we talked about him in the Dexter episode as well, that uh, he's claims to have been involved in more than 90 murders. And they have evidence linking him to at least 60 homicides. And he, I mean, he got away with it for well, a, really, he, a really long time. Across he in, state lines, the investigations wouldn't meet. And so now, is it? I think it's VICAP yeah. that they can put it in. And now they so. can look at motives like MOs. I mean, they can look at um, different types of signatures and they can kind of compare across state lines so that they can see whether there's uh, a pattern outside of the... Mm-hmm. Man, that's so valuable. And well, and also Sam Little was caught and put in jail for a number of crimes that should have been red flags. But because he was traveling, that was part of it. There was a lot of rape and things where he was let out too early, which is a, I'm not for mass incarceration, but I think there's, I think there's too little emphasis put on these kinds of violent crimes, particularly against women and too much put on, drugs. Oh, absolutely. I think that they've got it backwards. The jails and then the prisons, they all have very little margin because they're so full up with certain types of like war on drugs situations that they can't put those who need a little bit more vetting before being let out under the microscope the way they ought to. When really the research is showing that for instance, these mass shootings that we're experiencing, all done by men, um, you know, the thing that they have connected them, people have wanted to blame mental health, not a thing. 
It's not coming out. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who were uh, diagnosed with certain mental health issues that were involved with the mass shootings. It's, there's definitely a, a percentage of them, but it was not significant as a predictor of the shootings, which was like kind of a big like what? But if they're shooting like mass amounts of people or four or five people at a time, doesn't that by like definition mean you're mentally ill? Not really, actually. And that's why evil exists. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of a problem, but it wasn't a predictor. It wasn't a good mm-hmm. predictor. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's a good predictor is violence against women, domestic abuse, and dialogue online. So there was actually, if you uh, added up the domestic abuse general violence towards women and those who online had talked about women as being inferior, but Mm -hmm. maybe hadn't acted on it in their own lives. Like incels? Like 100% connection. Yeah. Every freaking one of them. That's... That's a freaking predictor. I think the actual number was like 98.9 or something like ridiculous. But it was it might so as well big. Be every of them. It might as well be every one of them. It's so big that you don't see that in research. It's such a good predictor that I'm surprised that we haven't actually made more uh, progress. But actually, some legislations have taken steps since that time mm-hmm. to change how the reporting is done. But the New York Times had a great article talking about that connection. Um, worth reading. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'll get that link from you and post yeah, it on our social media. Doesn't it kind of make you feel a little bit like a second class citizen sometimes? Yeah, and also because I mean, really, it's you and me. It's people like us. It's it's really a huge population of the United States, women and children, and the violence against us is a us in the general term, general term, not us individually, is a huge indication of an issue, and it's ignored. But it's been ignored for centuries. Well, it is. It's been it is, but I feel like so by 2019 long. we should be better at this. But I should, I think we should be better at quite a lot of things by this point in the human history, and we're still not there. You would think. I mean, you would think. Yeah. Oh, well, and that's what bothers me. I mean, we have made progress in so so many ways, but with this particular issue, we just got prettier with it. We put a nice theological name to it. We, it's an ism, and it's supposed to elevate everyone when actually it demotes people. And, you know, people like John MacArthur, hey, go home, man. Yeah. Amen. Sit down and shut up. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. All right. So Edgar Allan Poe really did have a very, very sad life. He had a tragic childhood. He lost his very young wife at a very young age. He married his 13-year-old cousin in private when he was like 27. And then she died at the age of 24 and he never quite recovered. His education was interrupted by uh, gambling debts and then being kicked out of West Point, which I'm not going to talk about, but it's an interesting story that I'll post a link to. He didn't have a lot of literary success in his life, though obviously a lot since then. Uh, He had a lot of substance abuse and died at the age of 40. But the biggest mystery that we have about Edgar Allan Poe is not what mental illness he had. It is actually his death. That's really, really, really a series of events that are inconceivable. So he, as I mentioned, he lost his young wife and he'd been a heavy drinker already when she passed away, but he 
took refuge in a bottle. And this is from History Today by Richard Cavendish. Had a series of failed relationships because he was desperate to find another wife to look for some happiness. He wrote... In 1849, in the springtime, my life seems wasted. And he was just 40. And in the summer, he went to Philadelphia and was drinking heavily and had terrifying hallucinations. For 10 days, he wrote, I was totally deranged. So that may have also had, there may have been some physical issues with the drinking. He may not have been quite as much of a drinker as they thought. He just had a really bad reaction to alcohol. That's a possibility. Maybe somebody slipped him some freaking <sighs> oh, not, hallucinogenics. Not, not enough, I don't think. But he met some friends. He was on his way to New York City. And he met some friends in Baltimore for a glass of whiskey as he was passing through. And then he disappeared for six days. And no one knows what happened to him. They found him in an Irish tavern six days later. And he was wearing somebody else's clothes. (laughs) (laughs) It's never a good sign when you like drop out and nobody can find you and you show up wearing somebody else's clothes. And it's unclear as to if some, what happened to him during that time, really, they have no idea where he was, what he was doing, whether he sold his fine clothing for alcohol or whether he was in a situation that he ended up with somebody else's clothes. Nobody knows. But he uh, was taken to Washington Medical College and he was pale and sweaty and talking incessantly to imaginary things. He was absolutely hallucinating. And then... At like three in the morning on a Sunday, he finally relaxed and said, Lord, help my poor soul and died. And that was the his final words, which are the final words that the uh, lady said in the show mm-hmm. before she stabbed herself in the face with an ice pick. It's a mystery. That is a mystery. It does sound medical, doesn't it? It it does. Well, it sounds like a combination of things. As with everything, people are complicated. There was definitely a lot of grief. There was definitely alcohol involved, but it does seem like I don't but know anybody. Doesn't make you, you hallucinate, hallucinate like that, no. or have all of those other symptoms. Well, like, not generally, but it's unknown to what extent he actually abused alcohol. So maybe he'd soaked himself in enough whiskey to pull out that reaction. So, like um, sometimes alcoholics will. They'll be really functional and they don't drink every day. But when they do drink, they drink a lot. And particularly those people can end up to a point where they'll not drink for a few days and then they'll have one or two drinks, which shouldn't make them wildly inebriated, but it will because of the damage that they've done to their body. Hmm. There's all kinds of brain chemistry things. I've just never... Wow. I've never heard of like the hallucinations or, or like yeah. the um, particularly like pale skin, sweaty, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been pale skinned and sweaty after a night of but too much drinking. But like a medical college and no, went, that's help true. this. <laughs> you know, like, you know yeah, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it was the 18 whatevers, 
1830s. 18- that's pretty funny though. I, that's not funny. It's horrible. But when you said that, like when you said like they took him to a medical college, I was like, that's serious. Yeah. Cause they were like, he's still alive, but do some research. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> we got to study this guy because most people who are drunk do not do hallucinate. Not do this. Like what is happening? They it does. Do. It sounds like, I mean, it almost sounds like syphilis. Ooh. Like it sounds like one of those, the, the, or like the brain tumors that can uh-huh. really change the way that you are. Ooh. Like it sounds like, like a traumatic brain injury type of yeah. situation. Yeah. Or Ooh. some of those brain, like, yeah, I yeah. don't know. It just sounds very particular. It Obviously they sound... didn't do a autopsy or something. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know that why you wouldn't. A... If anybody I was going to do an autopsy on, this would be it. Right Well, here. we know they did autopsies at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you're an author interested in getting the FBI correct in your work, I have a resource for you. It's called Thriller Fest, and it's a convention for crime, mystery, suspense, and horror writers. For the past several years, they've off- the FBI has offered a workshop called Today's FBI Crime Essentials for Writers. Interesting. Yeah. Well, because the FBI's Office of Public Affairs is extremely passionate about the idea of accurate portrayal of the FBI in pop culture. So much so that they'll even invite fiction writers to send in questions Mm -hmm. to make sure that they get it right. That's really cool. I thought it was really neat. Okay, I have to do something. I have to say something. All right, so I got that idea of syphilis in my head, so I had to Google it. Okay. Okay, so the Time Magazine article came out a while ago. So historians believe, some historians believe, Poe may have suffered from either rabies, cholera, or syphilis. Oh! That based on their research. And some, actually, historians dispute the influence of alcohol in the situation, although... Um, it seems like that's maybe a minority. I think okay. if you have rabies, cholera, or syphilis, alcohol is a bad idea. Um, yeah, yeah, you don't say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, but it does look like they are are really. Yeah. Well, so Interesting. There's, there's more stuff going on than just a sad man drinking away his depression. I think so. I think so. Of course, alcohol doesn't help you if you're fighting any of these diseases. I guess some people uh, think influenza maybe even. Wow. And then some say murder. Some say murder. Also possible. Mm -hmm. Also possible. He seemed like he wasn't an easy man to be around, but morose and sad. Yeah, and uh, gambling, gambling debts and things. So who knows? He might have been murdered because he. Owed I mean, he somebody was either something. completely morose and difficult, or he was a world of fun. Oh yeah, I bet it was a, one extreme or the other. Right? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he wasn't. Uh, there was no. But you can tell he was a deep, sensitive man for his him to grieve his wife like that. Though. Yeah, yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. By all accounts, he adored her and was very caring towards her, even though she was sickly from the time they got married, which I'm sure, you know, I don't know, the 27-year-old marrying a 13-year-old. It seems awful now, but in those days, it wasn't near as bad. No, but he did hide it for several years. Their marriage. Wasn't his cousin, you said? Yes. See, and that's part of it, too. How Freudian. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so <sighs> next time 
your hometown murders and ours. I found a good one. I'm excited oh, to oh. research and talk about it. I'm excited so, to hear it. Yeah, because it's awful. <laughs> it's terrible. But it's. I think it's going to have a lot of interesting aspects. Okay, crime podcasters are funny. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes, it's awful. Oh, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> people die. Yay! A lot of people died. Oh! Oh, I can't wait now. Yeah, so our hometowns and yours. So join us for that. Thank you to everybody who sent them in. We can't wait to share them all with you. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.